I'm going to share with you scripture reading this morning. And beware, when somebody asks you to read, you should read the verses to make sure there aren't any words in there you can't pronounce. But I'm going to ask you to open your Bible and keep it open for the sermon. It's on page 659 in the Pew Bible. And I want to remind you of the worship destination. We are reminded of what the Lord requires of us. This is Micah 6, 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. Also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember that Balak, the king of Moab, canceled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? and bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's always an an honor to be here and to fill the pulpit for uh, Jim while he's away, and I know that you're all praying for him as they travel back to try and get here, they hope, for Brook Woodstock this evening. Uh, But it is a privilege to be here and to always bring the word before our church family. I'm going to be speaking on Micah 6. It's a difficult passage, a little more difficult than I realized when I selected it, and it's been just stomping all over me for about two weeks and really challenging me, encouraging me, but it, is, it has been a challenge. And so um, would you pray with me as we begin? Father, I pray that this would not be an exercise in reading or an exercise in hearing or an exercise in public speaking but a demonstration of your power as your Holy Spirit uses this text to open our hearts before you that you might transform our lives to be more like Christ and to love you deeply. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Um, As I was thinking about Micah, I was thinking about it being this great court scene of Yahweh versus the people of Israel, his people. And so I thought about another court case that I've come across before, and it was of Dennis Lee Curtis. Um, Dennis Lee Curtis was arrested in South Dakota back in 1992 for burglary. And in his pocket, the police found the sheet of paper that had his code of conduct. And this is his code of conduct. One, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. Two, I will take cash and food stamps, but no checks. Three, I will rob only at night. 
Four, I will not wear a mask. Five, I will not rob mini-marts or 7-Elevens. So we're talking high-class kind of guy here. No mini-marts or 7-Elevens. Six, if I get chased by the cops on foot, I'll get away. If chased by vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. I mean, saint. I mean, no, no civilians on the line here. Seven, I will rob only seven months out of the year. So a little time for vacay and a little family, you know. Seven months out of the year. And lastly, I will enjoy, I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. And this guy, he's a saint. I mean, really, truly, this guy has this great code of conduct. He's outstanding, so he thought. Dennis, the problem here is Dennis knew the law. He knew the law. We all know the law. You're not supposed to do these things. But he had desires for things that over time began to twist the law so much that he actually had a sense of morality about himself. He was breaking the law, but in some ways he felt like he was doing good. He twisted the law. But when Dennis stood before the court, he was not judged by the standards he wrote out on his little piece of paper. No, he was judged by the right standards of the court and was found wanting. So he had twisted the law so much to the point where he actually had a sense of morality. I think our passage is very familiar um, when I think about Dennis' situation because Israel, God's people, had this beautiful, wonderful law of God before them. But over time, uh, they began to not trust God. They began to twist the law so they could get what they want. They began to twist the law and say, well, the law doesn't say this, so we can go do that. And they began to be immoral. And God is bringing this court case against his people. And we see this right in the first verses. If you still have your Bible open, uh, uh, Micah 1, or excuse me, Micah 6, 1 through 2. says, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictments of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people and will contend with Israel. So, court case of the ages Yahweh versus his people. And there's a surprise witness the mountains. The mountains. As a surprise witness. Why does God personify these mountains and why does he call them to witness this? What have they seen? What do the mountains know? that can shed a little insight onto this case. Well, if we understand antiquity, we know that arguably the most important thing is not your troops on the ground, not the weapons that you have, but where you're stationed. And Israel had these majestic mountains that God actually placed them next to to protect them. And, but these mountains became a source of, Yah, of God's people's pride. They're like, who can come against us? We've got these mountains. It'd be like us if we, today in America, if we wanted to correlate it a little, well, we've got fighter jets and tanks and all these things, and those are maybe needed in case someone were to attack us. But as Christians, we'd say, no, our hope is always in God. And yet for God's people, they started trusting in mountains. No one can get over those mountains and get us. Before Before they get to us, we'll see them coming. And it's true. So the mountains were a source of protection We see in Micah 1, in the first chapter of Micah, verse 3 through 7, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt 
like wax under him, and the valleys will split open. Like wax before the fire, the waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Why does God talk about melting mountains? He talks about it because the people have sinned. They're in error. And what he is saying, poetically, the mountains aren't going to stop me. The judgment's coming. You're trusting in these mountains, but no mountains can hold me back. The judgment is coming. And we know that ultimately it did in the form of Assyrian exile, Babylonian exile. The people were carted out of their land and put into foreign land. Psalm 125 verse 2 says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Here the psalmist is getting it right. He talks about the mountains, but he goes further and says God is surrounding his people. It's not, it's not the mountains that protect us. It's ultimately God that protects us. And we see that they were punished and the Assyrians were able to overcome the mountains and take them out. And yet this is like us, isn't it, so often? There are so many things we trust in other than God. I'm guilty of this. I'm so guilty of looking at the abilities of my hands, the things around me, uh, the people that I can have around me to support me. And before I know it, I'm not really leaning on God for anything. I'm leaning on my abilities, my talents, my gifts, other people in my life, a career, money, all these mountains around me that I think protect me, when in reality, I'm not even trusting in God. And what are the sins of the people? Greed and power. Greed and power. So Micah chapter 2 says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them, They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. So here's the problem. They're not trusting on on Yahweh anymore, and they become inward-focused and greedy and power-hungry. And they actually, these people are sitting on their bed at nights, dreaming and plotting how they can take land from people, which was the most prized possession you could have. If you look, land is a huge theme throughout the Old Testament. They're plotting on how to get these people's lands, how to take their their homes. And now what's interesting is, when we read that, we think, these are vicious people, right? I mean, like, fangs out and claws, and they're just ready to pounce on people. But it actually looks much tamer than that. If we would have met these people, most likely we'd say, man, they're just shrewd businessmen. They're shrewd businessmen. They have a perfect business model. They're able to get every dime out of everyone. They're able to uh, wring everyone dry and make sure they get the maximum profit while paying the fewest workers. These are just shrewd businessmen. And this is kind of an abuse of the law. For one of them to put their competitors out of business isn't actually against the law. But Yahweh would say, but is that the intent? Even though it doesn't say, don't put your competitor out of business, are you supposed to be doing that? Is that your goal in life? Or should it be to make sure that the land prospers, right? So when Israel was doing well under King David, it, they prospered. Everyone was eating. The poor had food. The widows had fo- food. The orphans had food. And now, in this time in Israel, it's not the case. Widows are hungry. Orphans are without shelter and care. So, they're maximizing their efforts to take as much as they can, and they have the power to do it. Micah 3.11 says, its heads give judgment for a bribe. 
Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Their judges are giving out verdicts to the wealthy who have money. The priests are saying, saying what people want to hear as long as they get paid for it. This is gross abuse among the people of God, and God will not stand for it. There are people among God's people going hungry and needy while others are hoarding and getting and grabbing. And God says, enough. The mountains aren't going to hold me back. You'll be judged. What about idolatry? So we see greed and power. And of course, that's all stemming from idolatry. But we see it specifically in Matthew, uh, excuse me, Micah 5. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no longer to the work of your own hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your images. None of that was ever allowed among the people of God. That's all foreign pagan culture brought in to the people of God, and all of it is wicked. That's what we see in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Now here's, here's the thing. This is where it, it doesn't seem as harsh if you were actually there. These people... God's people, they would walk into the temple and they would praise God and they would make sacrifices to God and they would worship, they would lift holy hands and sing and clap and they would say, Yahweh, we love you and they would pray, God, we need your help. Our crops, they need water, Lord, bring water for our crops. We need our animals that uh, are going up for the slaughter to be healthy, Lord, protect them. They would pray all this. They would sing songs and read scripture. But then they would, they would leave the temple and they would mosey on over to the Baal idol. And they'd bow down to Baal and say, Baal, we need your help. Uh, help us with water and crops and animals. Then they would mosey on over to the Molech altar and pay homage to Molech. This is what we call hedging our bets, right? God's people would hedge their bets. They would pay homage to Yahweh, but just in case we really need these crops, we'll also go worship to this God and this God and this God. We'll go to sorcerers and fortune tellers and we'll pay them and, and we'll even pay priests to say everything's going to be good. And Yahweh's like, this is disgusting. You're not trusting me at all. You're hedging your bets. Amos 5, 20 through 24 says, I hate, this is God speaking, I hate, I despise your feast and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fat animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God knew that his people were coming in with false worship because there are people in the land suffering. There are people in the land struggling being abused by the people in power, and God says, your worship smells. It stinks. I won't, I won't take it. I won't, it's not genuine. It's not real worship. You are not trusting me. And to be honest, I'm no different than these people. It's easy to look back and, and think those poor Israelites, but I'm no different, and I would argue that if we all were to examine our hearts, we're no different at times. The problem about us is that Hopefully, we would all say we trust the Lord. But the secret is, we're just really bad at trusting God. 
I know I am. It's very, very easy for me to lean on my own understanding, to go my own way, to use my own giftings, to think I know what I need at the right time and to go and do it and to make it, all the while not trusting God. It's easy for me to sit in the pew and pray, Lord, I need your help, and then go out and take matters into my own hands. Right? Maybe it's a career, and you're like, I know I need this job no matter what it costs me, no matter what it takes. Maybe it's trusting in bank accounts to provide for the future, and you're like, you don't really need God because you've got everything provided for. Maybe it's a relationship. You know, As long as you have that person, life is good. But when things are rocky or you don't have them, your life is incomplete. It's showing a lack of trust in God, and yet we're all there. Sometimes I talk to my college students about Grades don't define you. Don't trust in your grades. Work hard as unto the Lord, but don't trust in grades. You need God, no matter if you have a 4.0 or a 2.4 or lower. We won't go there this morning. So this is the problem. God's people are, God's people are bankrupt, and they're not trusting him. They're going to all other means to make things work in their life, not God. And then here's God's case, verses 3 through 5. O people... My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. And actually, the saving acts there, I actually prefer in the Hebrew the translation righteous. Righteous acts. So that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. So here's the deal. Maybe it's God's fault. Maybe God is too demanding. Could it be that God has wearied his people? Maybe he's put too much burden on them. Maybe it's God's fault for this, and God's asking. It's interesting, though. He's showcasing his grace. In verse 3, he says, how have I wearied you? Or burden you. And that verb there in the Hebrew actually has this idea of, of weighting down, pulling down. How have I wearied you? And it's a play on words that if you read it in the Hebrew, the words are almost, they sound alike. I mean, it's a vowel pointing difference. They sound identical because there's a flip flop. He's saying, I haven't pulled you down, I've lifted you up. I haven't pulled you down, I've lifted you up out of slavery in Egypt. I've pulled you up from Egypt and put you up in a sweet land with milk and honey. Everything's great, big old mountains. And I've shut up the mouth of those who would come against you. So if you know the story, Balak pays Balaam uh, to, to, have, uh, to say negative things against the people of Israel, to prophesy negatively against Israel. And when Balaam goes to speak, he opens his mouth, and what comes out? Grace. <laughs> Beautiful prophecy of, of their protection. God was twisting his words that he could not speak falsely against them. He protects his people. So God has, in first of all, made a people. He made a people. Graciously made a people. Then he rescued them, redeemed them, and now he protects them. And what have they done? Deserted. They've left him. So God is showcasing his righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is the standard. It's the gold standard. And that gold standard is God. So when God works, it is a righteous act. And what we're called to do is to get to that level of righteousness. We're called to be righteous as God is righteous, to be holy as God is holy. This is a difficult task, but this is what we're called to. 
So here's the deal. You have this court case. Israel has deserted. They have left God. They have not trusted him. In fact, Hosea talks about how the people of God have played the role of the prostitute. Um, that's in Hosea. It's kind of harsh. But he's like, you've become a whore. You've been with all these other gods, and you've left me. And yet, look at the grace I've showed on you. So then in verse 6, six through 7, Israel has a little plea bargain. There's note to self. You can't win the court case against God, so always take the deal, right? Always take the deal. And so here's verses 6 through 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, for the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? It's a little bit of debate here. Most scholars take the line, or I've taken their line, <laughs> that the people of God aren't repentant here. It sounds kind of like, oh, they're getting the idea, but they're repentant. But here's, if you know anything about the, the prophets, he sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet so that the people will what? Repent. God's saying, if you repent, I will relent um, in this court case here. But they don't do it. They won't do it. They won't repent. So it sounds almost like they're repentant, but actually, this makes much more sense if you read a little sass, a little attitude into it. They're basically saying, what do, you, what do you want from us, God? What more can you want? Tell us what you want to make it right. Tell us. How about all of these? And they list these things, and they really list three major categories. Quality, quantity, and what I call at the end, absurdity. Quality. How about a whole burnt offering, the entire animal, all of it to you? Quality. How about a year-old calf? A year-old calf was a, a very expensive item because there was so much left to get from that animal before they died. It was still young, had so much promise. How about that? Quality. Whole burnt offering, a calf. How about that? Would that make you happy, God? Would that appease you? Would you get off our back if that were the case, if we could give you quality? What about quantity? How about a thousand rams? We just, one by one, just come on in here and slaughter them. Would that be enough? A thousand rams, God. Is that good enough? And he says, how about 10,000 gallons of oil? How about oil? Would that be a, just Come on, we're being gallon after gallon. Would that be enough? And they really kind of slapped God in the face by saying, what about our firstborn son? Because every Israelite would know that you don't make child sacrifice. Animal sacrifice, yes. But pagans, outside of God's people, they made child sacrifice, not God's people. It's almost a slap in the face. How about that? Would that be enough? And so the God's people are frustrated. I just want to make God happy. Is this enough? What more do you want? The problem with all this, with everything they listed, the problem is that it's replaceable. Right? Rams make more babies. Olive trees make more olives. Uh, you can produce more offspring. They're willing to give God anything that they can get back. Anything that they can get back, you can have it, God. And we are often like this, aren't we? <laughs> I'm so guilty of this, of giving God a little bit here and a little bit there, but maybe God is requiring more of us. We love to give God the sideline items. It's convenient. So I can give a little bit of my paycheck here, knowing I'm going to have more paychecks down the road. It's not a big deal. I'll give a little bit of my time here, but you know I've got all this other time and this vacation and all these other things going on. It's very easy for us to fall into this trap 
And now we get to this idea of what God actually requires of us. Verse 8. If you look at verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, I've read the book of Micah a few times. I don't know why. Um, but I've, I've been familiar with it. And when I read this as a little kid or a young Christian, I thought, man, God really takes off the brakes, I mean, takes off the accelerator a little bit and kind of slows down because this is so gracious, you know? I picture God just walking with us in the meadow and walking humbly with him. Um, I just picture this, you know, doing acts of service and kindness. And I've always, it's always seemed like God's kind of softened a little bit. What, all, what's all, what happened to all this talk about melting mountains and stuff, and now we're walking in humbly with God? It seems like a big contrast. But actually, God is asking them for the costliest thing in the entire world, yourself. He's asking you, not for 1,000 gallons or 10,000 gallons of oil, which you'll get again next year, but your life your heart, all of your being, all of who you are. That's what he's asking. Because the only way to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God is a total heart that's devoted to God's work. Total heart. To do these righteous acts is for us not to do righteous acts. He's asking us to be righteous. There's a difference. Don't just do a few righteous acts here and there. He's actually asking you to be righteous. It's a very big difference. But our righteousness is like filthy rags. This is the difficulty. Here's the rub of the whole Bible and what the whole meta-narrative of Scripture is getting us to. Our righteousness is like filthy rags, so how can we be made righteous? The beauty of this looking as a Christian on this side of church history, this beautiful court case comes out to show that Israel is guilty. Humanity is guilty. But the beauty is that the judge steps down and becomes the defendant. The judge steps down and takes on humanity and becomes the defendant. His perfect righteousness, Christ's righteousness, becomes our righteousness. So that if we are found in Christ, we are righteous. He took on our sin that we might take on his righteousness. We clothed him with our iniquity. He clothes us with his robes of righteousness. This is grace. This is the beauty of the incarnation. You know, as Christmas rolls around, um, I always think about 100% God, 100% man. Why? If he's not 100% God, he doesn't have the power to cancel sin. And if he's not 100% man, then we're all still on the hook. It's this idea of all the power of God and all the humanity and sin together on the cross for forgiveness. Look at what Romans 5 says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God, through Christ, 
has brought us up out of slavery. Not just up out of slavery, not just saved us from, from the bondage of sin, but he's also put us up in the family of God. If you are a believer, you are part of the family of God. Ephesians says that we are co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs, like all the inheritance of Christ is ours. And furthermore, God has protected his people. It says, scripture says that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. He's protected us, loved us, redeemed us, and we find our righteousness in him alone. See, here's the thing. Israel, in this passage in Micah, has gotten it backwards. They try to serve so that they can satisfy God. We recognize as Christians that God has been satisfied by the blood of Christ. Therefore, we can go and serve with joyful hearts. These people are not serving. They're robbing their own people so they can live lavishly. In Amos, it talks about how they drink, uh, drink wine by the bowlfuls. They're partying. They're living it up while there's widows and orphans who have nothing. And they think, well, we can just serve God and satisfy him. Give him these things. But as Christians, we recognize, no, no, no. God has already been satisfied by the blood of Christ. Therefore, as Ephesians also says, we can walk in the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. We can walk in these things. We can do good things in light of the gospel. To, to flip that is to never be satisfied in service. This is why there's more and more research coming out about young people, um, ages 18 to 25, getting burned out of social justice causes and movements such as these because a lot of times they get into it and they're trying to, to do something good, which is great. I applaud that. But as a Christian, we recognize there's a difference. If you're always trying to do this to make yourself feel good or to satisfy a deep longing, you're going to be burned out. The driving motivation is love of God, recognizing Christ, seeing him exalted, and in light of that grace, that compels us to go. These people don't love God. That's why we're bad at serving. Micah is pointing out the fact that if they were to love God and give their lives, they would love to serve. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, brothers, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And this is the rub, isn't it? We're, we're supposed to be living sacrifices. The difficulty with living sacrifices, they crawl off the altar from time to time, right? They manage to get off that altar and, and go live their own way, and then we are brought back again and again to the gospel. I'm asking you and me to give our lives and our hearts to God. And yet I think that becomes such a maybe cliche Christian phrase that what does that actually mean to live, to give our hearts to God? I think it means the cross. I think it means dying to individualism. I think it means having our wills bent towards God and lives that reflect God in the world. It means dis discipling and disciplining our our minds and our thoughts to be countercultural. It means costly grace. It means bucking the systems of our society that say, well, you're only cool or hip or popular or great or successful if you have money, a career, or if, if you have this kind of house or if you have this kind of spouse or whatever it may be that our society tells us, and we're, we're going to have to die to some of those in order for us to serve and to really love God. When I hear that, I think, that's weighty. 
And it is. It's costly. The cost of righteousness is great because it costs Jesus his own son, or God his own son in Jesus. It was costly for the Father. And so what does he require of us? I love this quote from Bonhoeffer as we kind of close it up. Costly grace, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, his whole life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is costly. But in light of the gospel of Christ, it does not become costly. It becomes a gift that we enjoy giving to God. So for me, I have to often think, I've got to set my gaze on Christ. I've got to look to Christ, recognize the grace every day. If I'm going to shake from my head the cobwebs of society that tell me this way, that way, you know, it's very easy for me. I don't know what it is about getting older, but I can sit on my back porch and daydream about turning my garden into an oasis. You know, there's flowers and waterfalls, and, and I have to say, Micah, you know, maybe all my time and effort and money shouldn't be on making that garden just yet. Maybe that's a little down the road. Who can I serve? That's hard, because that's dying to self. And this is what the scriptures are calling us to do. And that's what the world doesn't understand, is when we die to self and give to the other. Some questions I would leave you with, and I've been asking myself the same week, because I feel like the chief of all sinners when I think about these things. What are the needs of those around you in our church, in your community, your next-door neighbor? How can you meet those needs? And does the love of God in Christ Jesus compel you to sacrifice and help? Or is it more out of duty? Is it grace or is it duty? These are questions that are hard to ask of ourselves, but I think for the church it's absolutely necessary. I have a friend who's an atheist, and she's shocked that I would spend time with her. Um, we meet for coffee every once a month, basically, and I talk to her about Christ. She's, she doesn't want to believe. She actually does want to believe, but she can't believe. And she started crying because I was spending time with her because um, she, she knew I had Heather and, the, and Daniel, and she knew I would love to spend time with them. But here I am giving my time here. And I said, it looks different, doesn't it, kind of? So it, she said, yeah, you know, no one else wants to spend this kind of time. They're always wanting to get something from me or, uh, you know, use me in some way, even though they're polite about it. But you just spend time with me. The hardest question, I think, of the church today, especially in America, is if you were an atheist tomorrow, would your life look any different? Would your life look any different than an atheist? Or, or can you say, no, my life is devoted to Christ, and if I wasn't a Christian, man, my life would be radically different. Your service, your, the way you engage people. These are just things I've been thinking of and asking God to help me with that I might actually represent his kingdom 
here and now. Um, I don't want to be like the people in Micah where I'm not trusting him, not walking with him, and leaning on my own understanding and abilities. May we trust God to the point where we would sacrifice the things the world tells us we have to have and need for the sake of the other. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a most difficult challenge. I pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts because of Christ. The fact that he gave everything, and it should have been us, and he gave it all. Lord, the least we can do is be living sacrifices. I pray that you would help us with this, Lord. We are weak and feeble. Lord, we go our own way. As the great hymn says, we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord, help us. Remind the gospel. Remind our hearts and and minds of the gospel, Lord, daily, that we might love you and serve those around us for the sake of your kingdom and the glory of your name. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.